the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's show. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and welcome to uh, Dr. Carol's Couch. Today we've got you covered. I'm sure you, uh, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you know that there's a writer's strike going on. It started yesterday, and uh, a lot of people are out there moaning and groaning. I'm not talking about the writers. I'm talking about uh, all of you who are thinking, which one of my favorite shows am I going to have to do without? Well, we got you covered because um, the title of today's show, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, is How to Cope with the Writer's Strike by Becoming a Reality Show Star. My guests today uh, cover the whole area of uh, going from strike to reality show. Uh, Howard Fabric, he is a Los Angeles entertainment and labor attorney. His clients have included films from Easy Rider to City Slickers and Terminator 2, and he's going to take you behind the scenes of the writer's strike. We're also going to actually go to the picket line where we're going to talk with Nick Santora, who is a writer, an out-of-work writer, um, and he's going to talk about what the mood is like and what things are like being a picketer on the strike line. And then we're going to be talking with Casey Lee. She's the author of How to Get Booked on Reality TV. And she's going to give you a crash course on what you can do to um, take advantage of the fact that there's going to be an onslaught of reality shows coming up if this strike uh, lasts for more than a couple of weeks. In case you're wondering about what impact this is going to have on your particular favorite show, um, the late-night shows such as uh, the Daily Show, Saturday Night Live, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Late Show with David Letterman, they are all going into reruns. And other shows, dramas, sitcoms, they all sort of um, have completed different numbers of episodes for the season. So <laughs> they're going to run out of gas <laughs> at different times, depending upon how many shows, how many scripts, have already been written. Um, soaps, I can tell you about that since uh, I worked for about 10 years on Young and the Restless and uh, Bold and the Beautiful as a psychiatric script consultant and part of the writing team. And um, I can tell you that they do not write many scripts in advance at all, um, perhaps one or two weeks. Maybe occasionally they get ahead to two and a half or so, but they're going to be running out of gas as well. You know, in case you're, you know, before you start moaning and groaning and, and, and being upset that writers are on strike and that you're going to be missing some of these shows, um, let me give you a sense of just how unfair the uh, division of of wealth is in Hollywood. 
and I, I have to um, make an admission ahead of time, I am a member of the Writers Guild. So, yes, I am somewhat um, prejudiced and in favor, but when you hear these numbers, I think you'll also agree that it is really appropriate that the writers are on strike. The median salaries of Hollywood writers in 2005 uh, for male TV writers, it's 94000 a year. For female TV writers, it's 94000 a year. It's uh, essentially the same um, little the tenths are off. <laughs> Men make three-tenths of a point more. But for male film writers, the median salary is 90000 a year. And for, fil- for female film writers, it's 50000 a year, an amazing disparity. But um, think of those salaries compared to how much uh, the CBS chief, Leslie Moonves, for example, makes in 2006, he made $28.6 million in his year. Now, granted, he has a little bit more responsibility, but the disparity is still amazing. Uh, another way to look at this is to look at the writer's share of proceeds from the sale of a $19 DVD. The studios make $9 per DVD, the retailers make $5, and the writers make $0.05. Cents. The rest of it is um, the rest of the fees come in cover um, other unions and production and shipping and so on. But but look at this: the studios make nine dollars, the writers make five cents. So, although it is going to be painful for us, it's going to be a lot more painful for the writers, who have a lot more to lose, such as their house. So why don't I go now to Howard Fabric? He is. Um, a senior labor partner in the Los Angeles office of Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld. He also has a uh, specialty in entertainment law. He has a whole list of impressive clients, um, Columbia Pictures, George Lucas Films, Orion, Mark Goodson Productions, Carol Co. Universal Studios, and movies that you've all heard of, Easy Rider, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Rocky, Rambo, Indiana Jones, uh, Glory, City Slickers, and Terminator 2. So his experience in labor matters um, is vast. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, Howard, why don't we start off with you? Maybe you could walk us through um, what what happened, <laughs> why the writers are, are walking the ticket lines today, what's been happening in the months before, what do they want, why didn't it work out, why did it end up uh, in a strike? Well, I think there are several principal issues. I think they're both economic uh, uh, issues. Uh, they, they've been pretty well, uh, you know, articulated in, in the trade press and in the uh, in, in some of the uh, regular press. Uh, the first uh, area relates to what you pointed out as the their participation in uh, home video revenue. Uh, has been a sore point for a number of years. Um, the the origin of that uh, formula, however, is not quite as as one sided as 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 you suggest. Uh, when the original formula for home video uh, was established, it actually uh, came into play uh, in, in 1971, well before uh, the existence of that market, uh, and it became identified as what they call the the supplemental market. And when that market initially 
was envisioned by the, the film companies, they assumed that if there was ever going to be a home video market for their theatrical product, and that's what they were thinking about at the time, it was going to be a consequence of them licensing the rights to a third party to uh, produce uh, and distribute uh, via home video. That ultimately evolved uh, a number of years later, and companies like Vestron and others became home video distributors and remitted back to uh, the licensors, the major studios who own the libraries, 20% of, of the wholesale gross. So the studios were getting 20 cents uh, on the dollar uh, when the, uh, they were distributing through third parties. And the premise being that the third parties were incurring all the costs attendant to that distribution. Uh, later on, they saw home video was obviously a lucrative business. They moved into that business themselves. They continued to remit on 20% of their wholesale uh uh, volume. Unfortunately, they, they didn't look closely at their collective bargaining agreements at the time with all the guilds, which said they were supposed to be reporting on 100% of their revenue. Uh, because the, the uh, and, and they got into litigation with, uh, as I recall, the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild, and possibly the Directors Guild uh, in the 1980s on that issue. And the ultimate settlement was that they could continue to report on 20% of their revenue. And I have to assume that in that litigation, they uh, were able, through discovery, uh, to get full access to financial records to actually analyze what were the real costs uh, the major companies had in terms of uh, the manufacture and distribution of video cassettes. So it, w- it isn't quite as one-sided as one suggests, and that formula was not really unilaterally uh, imposed. It was a, a fully negotiated in the context of litigation. Um, what's what's changed since then, of course, is the VHS video cassette is pretty much uh, no longer in existence. The the DVD distribution uh, is now uh, the principal home uh, you know form of uh, home video. Uh, the cost uh, attendant to manufacturing, inventorying, distributing uh, DVDs, I'm I'm told, is is significantly different. So, in one sense, that that there's an argument that the that 80-20 split. Uh, is not uh, relevant anymore. And I think the real concern in that regard is not so much uh, with respect to home video because that's been the formula in place now for almost 20 years. Uh, I think the concern is what happens when instead of DVDs, it's going to be direct online uh, broadband delivery uh, of programs to the home, uh, and there will not be any uh, hardware or software cost attendant to doing that. Will the distributors and producers continue to say, we still want to take 80% off the top? And at that point, I, I think that is not probably a defensible position, and I think that's one of the major issues when they talk about their share of revenue in new media. I think that's a principal concern. Something else that's happened is also no one envisioned that there would be a home video market uh, for television product uh, You know, when this formula originally was evolved. Uh, and uh, because you know, initial television was all rerun. For, it was all run for free and rerun for free, uh, as far as uh, the viewers were concerned. Who nobody envisioned public paying uh, to see uh, or buying uh, videos of television programs. Well, that changed when uh, companies like HBO could sell you know editions uh, of uh, the first year, second year, third year of Sopranos or Sex and the City, and and other programs are now being sold for direct for home video on DVD. Uh, so on the television side, there is now also a concern about uh, the share of revenue they're getting from uh, from those markets. 
And in one sense, this has really aligned the television writers and the theatrical writers uh, have the same interest. Uh, historically, in prior strikes, uh, there was really a, a, a division between the two groups within the Writers Guild. Uh, we used to characterize a strike as being a television strike mm. uh, rather than being a theatrical strike. But I think there there is some alignment and interest now uh, with respect to the exploitation of not only new product but existing product in that media via home video. And, of course, uh, with respect to uh, now new product that's going to be made uh, for forms of Internet delivery, be it uh, you know on iPhones or uh, cell phones or direct on Internet or compu- you know, t- television sets or computers, uh, there is a concern about participating in, uh, in, and actually rendering services for and participating in the revenue streams that might develop in those markets. However, at this point, the producers, uh, no one's really figured out how to monetize uh, and make money uh, from those forms of exhibition. It's all kind of experimental. And, of course, on the producer side, uh, they're concerned about locking themselves into formulas for a market that has not yet evolved and no one knows exactly where it's going to go. I think those are the two principal issues, the home video revenues uh, and the uh, exploitation, the you know, sharing and revenue streams from new media if and when that uh, materializes. You know, it, it seemed like a very dramatic um, way that the strike actually started uh, well, we can talk about that a little bit later because we need to take a break. But um, maybe you can you can tell us about that the, the last minute uh, uh, events that happened. It could have been <laughs> it could have been scripted in itself. Well, we need to take a break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, and do join us. We're talking about uh, how to cope with the writer strike by becoming a reality show star. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The Kerry Douglas Show, with the CEO of Worldwide Music Incorporated and the founder and publisher of Gospel Truth Magazine, Kerry Douglas. By tuning in weekly, you will gain insight, tips, and tools to help get your career started. From how to market yourself to distribution of your product, learn the power of faith-based marketing and much more on The Kerry Douglas Show. Join Kerry each week with guests from the gospel music industry, entrepreneurs, speakers, and authors as they discuss faith-based news, events, and trends. The Kerry Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas broadcast each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, and is brought to you by Gospel Truth Magazine and Worldwide Music Incorporated on the Voice America channel. The Carrie Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas, your premier source for faith based entertainment, news, events, and trends. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST. 
4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about the writer's strike and how it means more reality shows for us, but surreality for the starving writers. My guests uh, are Howard Fabric. He is an attorney uh, who works with the entertainment industry and um, particularly in regard to employment relations matters. Casey Lee, we'll be hearing from her in a little while. She's the author of How to Get Booked on Reality TV. But now, going live to the picket lines in Los Angeles, we're going to speak with Nick Santora. He is uh, credentialed as an attorney as well, but he gave up his life as an attorney because he was miserable. He quit his job. He came to Los Angeles to pursue writing, and he has written, um, is writing, was writing, four shows, including The Sopranos, Law and Order, and Prison Break. And um, he also has written a first novel called Slip and Fall. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hi, how are you? Good. So tell us what it's like on the picket line, and are you uh, beginning to think about, beginning to wonder why you left your secure job as an attorney? No, no one's questioning it for a second. It was the right thing to do. It's a great thing to do, and uh, we're going to get it done. Okay. No, I mean your own, I mean, standing on the picket line, did you ever have any moments when you were thinking, now that you're out of work on a picket line, should I have stayed and and, uh, continued being an attorney? Oh, no, no. I mean, listen, I'd rather, I'd frankly rather die than go back to practicing law. <laughs> nothing, against, nothing against practicing law. It's a very noble profession. It's just not what I was meant to do with my life. So what is it like on the picket line today? Um, everyone's in high spirits. You know, there's a, there's a ton of solidarity. We know that it's uh, what needs to be done. And uh, we're hoping, hoping that these studios come to their senses and then offer a fair deal. That's all we're asking for. Have you uh, been a recipient of any uh, Krispy Kremes by Jay Leno? Were you, which, where are you? Which spot are you at? I'm at the uh, Culver, Culver City Studios. So, no, uh, Mr. Leno has not come by. But uh, <laughs> I would, to be honest, uh, walking the picket line has been such incredible exercise that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to kill it by eating a Krispy Kreme. <laughs> well, what, so what are people talking about? I mean, is there any, are there any um, thoughts of when or how this is going to be resolved? No, I mean, look, it's all speculation, and no one knows. Um, at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the main gist of it is the Internet and the fact that studios are, are selling and downloading and streaming content that we've created in collaboration with other very talented people and not paying any money for it. And it's a preposterous position for them to take, and uh, we'll stay out until they come around. Yes, um 
how maybe you can sort of uh, briefly tell us how I, I know you have to go back to uh, picketing, but um, how you did? Co- you know, I just kind of guessed that you came from New York. Is that right? You can't tell from the accent. That's not that hard of a guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm from New York too. I came to Los Angeles uh, to to be involved in the entertainment industry. So I don't know. And I just took a look at your picture, and I just kind of it was all New York. Um, how it what, is when? No, I am. I'm pretty much all New York. What? Um, how did you come here um, and sort of get you know be in in relatively a short time become a writer for such top shows? Uh, when I was an attorney, I took uh, some time off. I had a week's vacation time, and instead of going away, I, I buckled down and wrote a screenplay. And I sent it into the New York Independent Film Festival, and it wound up winning Best Screenplay. And uh, that was it. I mean, within a few weeks of that, I was signed by an agency, and in less than a year, I was offered a job to write an episode of The Sopranos, and things just took off from there. I've been very blessed and very lucky, very fortunate. And um, are you not, it doesn't sound like you're very concerned that this is going to um, last long enough to put you in sort of financial jeopardy. Oh, no, no, I'm absolutely concerned that this will last a long time. I don't want it to last a long time for a million reasons. Um, There's lots of people that get affected by this. But when almost everything that you watch or listen to or see or read is put out by one of approximately half a dozen companies, you're not dealing with a free market. You're dealing with conglomerates. You're dealing with monopolies. And if they can break one union, they will break every mm. union. So, mm. you know, trust me, if they, if, they want, if, they, if, they, if they can break the people that make the content that makes billions of dollars, the next ones they're going to go after the people that deliver that stuff, which are the Teamsters. And after that, they're going to go after the next union mm-hmm. and the next union. Their job is to pay everyone as little as possible and as unfairly as possible. That's their mandate. We get it. Our mandate is to get a fair, fair compensation for creations that, frankly, make billions upon billions of dollars of income for these companies. We're not asking for a lot. Yeah. So, yes, we know it might last a long time, I sure hope it doesn't, and I am concerned that it might last a long time, but what, there's a difference between being concerned and not being resolute. We are resolute. Yes. Um, I also am a member of the Writers Guild, so you have my sympathies. Um, Why are you on the picket line right now? <laughs> I know. I should be. I was thinking about it, actually. You well, just, I, better see you, I better see you tomorrow. Yes, I was going to say, it seems like there'll probably be enough time for me to come down. Um you know, one of my thoughts is that the last Writers, Writers Guild strike in 1988 uh, lasted 22 weeks and really uh, provided a lot of misery for a lot of people. I mean, it cost some people their homes. It cost, I mean, it just was, um, not to say that it, wasn't, that it wasn't a good thing that it happened, but just that, you know, it lasted a long time and really caused a lot of people financial hardship. And I was wondering whether um, maybe the, the studios and producers are were thinking that the Writers Guild had such a hard time in 88 that they weren't going to strike. Has there been, do you have thoughts about that? Have, have people been talking about that, that, you know, that they never thought we would really do it? I don't really know what they were thinking. I can't really get in their heads. I think it, I, a lot of people were taken by surprise that we struck now as opposed to the spring. People thought we'd work under the 
you know, the terms of our deal, expired deal for about six to seven months and then strike in the spring. But I can't guess what they're thinking. And, uh, you know, I figure there's no, there's no value even trying to guess what they were thinking. It's tough financially for lots of people. Frankly, any gains that are made in this strike, I probably will never get back the money that I lose from being out of work, mm. but it's not about me. People in 1988, when I was a teenager, struck, and I'm, ga- I'm reaping those benefits now. Yes. And so I'll strike and take the hit now for the young writers that will you know, reap the benefits in 15 years. It's all cyclical, and it's the right thing to do. Yes, absolutely. Well, and of course, if you really want to, if you really want to help my finances, go to Borders and buy my new novel, Slip and Fall, <laughs> a national bestseller. Yes, and could you? Uh, why don't you uh, give us a little tagline on what that's about? Obviously, a legal term, but how did? I'm wondering how you, what it really means. Slip and Fall is a bit of a double entendre. It's a right. story of an honest personal injury attorney who can't make a living because he's so honest, and he's trying to practice in Brooklyn and. I used to practice personal injury law in Brooklyn, and it's tough, especially when you're going to go by the book, which I did. And uh, he decides he's going to do one tiny little thing that's kind of coloring outside of the lines. And it's a little bit of an insurance fraud deal kind of thing like that. And he'll just do it once, make a few grand, get his head out from under, save his family, because his family's in dire straits financially, and it gets away from him. And he gets involved with some real tough guys, and the FBI gets on to him, and it winds up possibly costing him and the family they love so much their lives. So it's a slip and it's about slip and fall law and it's also about his slip and fall from grace. And it's, mm. a, it's a, a a really fun story. It's if people like Prison Break, which is the show I currently write for up until a few days ago and we went on strike. Um if they like slip and fall I mean I mean Prison Break, which is a you know, an action thriller type show with a lot of heart, they'll like this book. And uh, that wasn't, I guess at some point it did stop being biographical, right? You didn't have the FBI. The fraud part wasn't uh, wasn't the biographical, (laughs) but but there were parts of it. You know, the fact that this guy was the first one in his family to get the opportunity to go to college, the fact that he felt very obligated to his family to make something of himself, I mean, that was, that's very, uh, you know, autobiographical. I was the first one in my family to have that opportunity because of the hard work of my family, and uh, I felt very obligated to do something with my life considering all their sacrifices for me and that's why I went to law school even though I had no desire to be a lawyer huh huh that's very interesting you're a, sh- you're a shrink I'm sure you can understand that yes <laughs> <laughs> well that's interesting and then uh, and then finally you um, rebelled and became more independent and came here and, and uh, fortunately were successful at it yeah but I learned after I said you know I'm not going to practice law anymore I learned right away that my family's goals for me were not what I thought they were. Their goals were for me to be healthy and happy and lead a moral mm. life, and they care less what I did for a living. I put the pressure on myself. My mm. parents never put that pressure on me. Hmm. Yes, it was just your perception. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for uh, for um, <laughs> giving us uh, a live from the front report. And, uh, yes, you've shamed me into definitely <laughs> yeah, <you're better. laughs> joining the ticket line. <laughs> I'll look for you. All right. And uh, I just hope the people out there understand that there's this perception that every writer in Hollywood makes $5 million a day. and These are working people, and most writers don't make anywhere near six figures a year. And it's day-to-day, and you live sometimes years on end in between projects that you have the ability when sometimes when you have finally have a chance to sell something it's years in between those opportunities and you're living off those small residual checks that you get 
and the studios are trying to take those away, and it will destroy the content and the entertainment that people have come to love. So it's not a bunch of millionaires picketing. It's the exact opposite of that. Yes, and I think that there is absolutely that uh, perception because because you hear about, you know, the, the media talks about uh, the big million-dollar, multi-million-dollar deals that writers get, but that's that's very few and far between. Yeah, I wish, I wish they were a lot more common. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank I will you. thank you for your time. Well, thank you. And again, yes, if you want to uh, support a writer, <laughs> you can uh, go get his book, Slip and Fall. Again, that was Nick Santora. We're going to be continuing with our show, talking more about uh, the writer's strike, what it means for you, and now what you can do to... Uh, to take advantage of it and become a uh, reality show star yourself. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. By George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST right here on the Voice America channel. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking to you today about the writer's strike and all of its ramifications. It was interesting, actually. We just heard from Nick Santora live from the picket line striking. Um, and I, my guest, Howard Fabric, um, has a long, uh, 
history and, and credentials from having represented sort of the other side, uh, the film studios and producers and television and the movies. So it's kind of interesting to hear this, this balance. And, um, we're going to be talking in a little bit to Casey Lee. She's the author of How to Get Booked on Reality TV. So, uh, your opportunities are going to be, uh, in front of you in a minute. Um, but Howard, I'd like to go back to talking about sort of the emotions that come into play here. You're certainly, uh, well versed in this, having, um, had to settle employment disputes, uh, in the entertainment industry and, and what we started to talk about the the dramatic turn that this uh, strike took, how it came down in the last moments. So why don't you um, start a little before that and, and give us your take on all of that? Well, this this negotiation, uh, I, I I believe, has been the most uh, unusual one that I've witnessed in in the forty years I've been involved in in the business. Not because the economic issues are somewhat unique or difficult, because the economic issues and changes in technology over the last 40 years have always proven to be difficult. What has been different about this has been the uh, the nature of the dealings between the parties. Uh, historically, they used to bargain uh, in the uh, in the you know in the negotiating room, and they had their first one of their first agreements reached across the bargaining table would be that there was no publicity unless it was joint publicity. Hmm. Uh, in this case, both sides uh, went to the press very early, well before they ever had their first meeting. Uh, they continued to uh, uh, argue their cases uh, in the press, and uh, it, it got, at some point, uh, very uh, vitriolic, and I'm told even across the table, uh, personal, uh, between the two chief uh, negotiators for hmm. both sides. And, and I have always observed the negotiations in the past, notwithstanding the issues and notwithstanding the, the uh, difficulties on both sides, to have been handled on a very professional uh, basis and did not get personal. They stayed on a business-like basis. So that was, a, I think, a major distinction this year, the fact that they were bargaining in the press and really uh, you don't make deals in the press, you make your deals across the table. So it delayed... Uh, Dramatically, uh, for an extended period of time, uh, they're getting to the bargaining table where they actually were face to face and talking to each other. And I don't think one they left themselves adequate time. Uh, the first Writers Guild negotiation I was involved in in 1966 started in March, and we met every day until almost June 30th uh, uh, when the agreement was reached. Uh, here they started in July for a week, broke off, and, and didn't talk to each other for I believe about seven or eight weeks. Uh, very difficult issues. They've left themselves very little time. I say they've colored the situation by uh, the, the press releases. Uh, and so that's been a very troubling aspect of this negotiation. And frankly, uh, that's one of the concerns I have about uh, how long this might go. Uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, what happened on, on Sunday. Uh, they're still, they finally, at the prompting of the federal mediator, uh, we're having serious negotiations. There appeared to have been movement going uh, when uh, uh, the Writers Guild uh, people sitting here got an email from the uh, the East Coast because of the three-hour time difference at midnight. It was only 9 p.m. in L.A. They were on strike. So the chief negotiator for uh, the producers said, listen, we're prepared to keep talking. Uh, why don't we just agree to stop the clock at 1159 
uh, and tell your friends on the on the East Coast to hold off because we think there's momentum and we're moving. When the Writers Guild declined to do that, that's when those negotiations broke off, and that that really is uh, you know uh, that's very troubling that the that the Writers Guild would not agree to that. It was no concession on their part to stay in the room and talk for another four or five hours. They gave up nothing. They weren't going to start picketing until uh, Monday morning anyways, and who knows what might have come out of that. Instead, they broke off on, I think, was on a very foolish uh, foolish basis and made them look foolish. Uh, and uh, they really that, that situation happened once before in a Directors Guild negotiation when the Directors Guild in New York uh, went out at midnight and as soon as the Directors Guild people sitting in the negotiations here in Los Angeles found out about it, they, they put a quick stop to it and made the deal 15 minutes later. Huh. So why do you think that uh, the L.A. people didn't tell the New York people to just hold off for a little bit? I, I, I don't, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of moving parts in these negotiations, mm-hmm. and there are group dynamics on both sides. Everyone assumes the Writers Guild is a single organization. Mm-hmm. There is actually Writers Guild East and Writers Guild West. They're separately incorporated, and while they are affiliated and bargained together, there are certain internal pressures as between the two groups, and historically Writers Guild East has been viewed as more militant uh, than Writers Guild mm-hmm. West. To what extent that contributed, I don't know, but that's been at least a, a historical a historical fact. There are, of course, as many moving parts on the producer side, too, even though uh, they're, they're all characterized as being the, 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 uh, the same. They're not the same. Uh, you have the major studios. Several of them are have network interest. Uh, several don't. Uh, some of them have cable interest. Some don't. Uh, some have theaters, uh, some don't. Uh, they're not uh, all identical. They do have different interests. Uh, and there's a whole host of independent producers that do not have the deep pockets of the major studios. Uh, and frankly, they produce more product annually, at least for the theatrical side, than the major studios combined. Uh, and those independent producers don't have cable interests. They suffer the same way the writers do in terms of claiming they're not getting their fair share out of video revenue, and I'm not sure anyone is looking after their interest. And in my view, that's my client base, by the way. So if I sound somewhat prejudiced, <laughs> uh, I, I like to represent the independent producers who go out and make the kind of pictures that that I think ought to be made uh-huh. that that uh, that, sell, that tell stories that you remember when you walk out of the theater that yeah. have a moral or a social or a psychological impact, mm. uh, and not simply uh, the, the big tentpole pictures that. You know, our 90 minutes of action and, yes. and 30 seconds of story. Well, that's good to hear, um, because because I certainly agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think part of the problem also is that the the bigger studios, um, which have become more and more um, combined, consolidated, um, and are just these these companies that. Um, Conglomerates is the word I was looking for. These corporations that just care about making money instead of caring about the creativity and putting across um, a really worthwhile product. Well, you're, you're putting a, a, a you know a, a personality on a corporation, and the fact is that there are within every one of those organizations, I can guarantee you, divergent views even on the issues that they're dealing with at the bargaining table. Um, uh, these are uh, made up of thousands of people. Their executives are not. Uh, Uniform in their thinking. Many of the senior creative executives at the major studios are very close to the folks that are walking the picket lines today in terms of their 
personal relations. This has to be as difficult for them to see their friends out on a picket line uh-huh. uh, as it is uh, for the writers themselves. Uh-huh. Okay, Casey Lee. <laughs> she is the author of How to Get Booked on Reality TV. She is the publicity diva. She's an author of uh, many other books as well, such as 52 Ways to Become Famous and Sometimes Infamous. And um, you have, uh, in your work, one of the things that you do is interview a lot of people from reality shows, um, producers as well as the contestants. And um, for those people who are listening who are groaning about their favorite shows being taken off the air, maybe they can make um, lemonade out of lemons and learn from you how to become a contestant on a reality show. There you go. Well, you know, something Howard was saying is that there's so many new media resources and outlets that are coming into play that have never been there before, much like the YouTube and a lot of the major studios now have on their websites their very own uh, shows that are online. And a lot of people are becoming stars online. Mm-hmm. And it's really amazing. But, you know, and even what you're talking about, most people do not realize that even though it's reality TV, it's still, they you know, they call that unscripted. If they didn't have the writers and creative persons behind them, they really wouldn't be worth watching. And there are a lot of creative input that goes into reality TV. And, of course, those are the people that typically a large percentage of them are not union. They're not protected. They've got lower pay. They don't have any benefits. There's no paid overtime, and they typically do so much overtime. And, of course, most of these are even freelancers mm-hmm. that are, you know, they're, they're the ones that are also getting just as much uh, you know, problems in these areas is what the the ones that are, and I know that the guild is going after most of these now. Mm. And going it's going to be a painful the... process. It will be a, pr- a painful process to get it to where these are the ones that actually do get their cut of the pie. Also, going after the shows to try to get them to hire just writers guild writers. That, and they're also going after the freelancers to get them to join. Uh huh to be a union member, too. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's going to take place slowly but surely because, you know, the, the studios are, and the production companies are looking at it that, okay, you go on strike, we've got a lot of reality TV programs that we're going to pull out the, you know, the stock and we're going to put them on there. But they also forget it's not going to be very entertaining if, you know, you, you're not going to build up a fan base to some of these shows. And so it is. It, it will be difficult. It really will to get them to where the fans are following it and you know getting with the flow and having the revenues that are coming from the advertisers too. Yes, being as loyal as people would be to their favorite dramas, for example, Desperate Housewives or uh, Twenty Four or something like that. It's going to be hard to, especially if they have to dig to the bottom of the barrel of the reality shows, pull out you know things that they weren't going to do before. Exactly. Well, we need to take a break. We'll come back shortly, and uh, you'll tell us about um, what people can do to uh, <laughs> to take advantage of this um, of these new shows that will have to come out to fill the void. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about how to cope with the writer's strike by becoming a reality show star yourself. And uh, my guests... um, currently on the phone is Howard Fabric and Casey Lee. And Casey is the author of How to Get Booked on Reality TV. So tell us the secrets. Sure, not a problem. Uh, there's basically just a few ways that, you know, people that are wanting to get on reality TV are always asking, how do I get on the show? And the basic thing, if you don't submit an application and a video, you're not going to get on. And, you know, a lot of people just, they say, well, I want to get on, want to get on, want to get on. The next thing, if they're not going to do a video, they're not going to send in the application, they need to go to a casting call. And the nice thing is the casting calls are being done all over the country now, during certain times, of course, not all you know all year long and everything. And a lot of people will say, well, how do I find the casting calls or the new programs that are coming up? And the best way is to go to log on to the production company, the major studios, main site like the CBS, the ABCs, Whoever produces the show will have it on their website. Sign up for their email list, and they will let you know when these casting calls are coming up or if they have a new show coming up. And that's some of the better ways to do it, and you need to really get their attention. I know a lot of the reality TV stars that I interview, 
they got on the shows because they did get their attention. They did a great video. They were good at what they were doing. They had the personality. They were very interesting. And a lot of that goes very, very far to get on these. Uh, another way that you can learn about casting calls and new programs, I've got three different websites that are probably the best that they keep things very, very current. And one is craigslist.org, one is realitytvmagazine.com, and the other one is sirlinksalot.net. Those are three of the better ones, you know, besides going to the main station's website. And a lot of people that are getting on some of the reality TV shows are not, I don't think they're really thinking about what it's going to be like either on the show or after the fact. And I always tell people, watch the show first, if it's not a new show, of course. If they have a show that they're really wanting to be on, watch the show, see how they interact. Look at how the camera is portraying people. And, you know, are they going to be comfortable in that particular type of setting? And are they a good fit for that show? Is their personality going to really fit in? In fact, with personalities, I have noticed that talking with the different production companies, the casting directors, and everything else, there's actually about five different personalities that they look for. And I'm talking about the ones that team people up against each other. Mm-hmm. And those are, are the, the ones that they're really looking for is what I call the agitator, you know, the people that stir things up. They have one that's the strategizer. That's the person that kind of works the whole team. They're looking at how everybody angles each other, and they're going to work that. Another one is the coaster. They are just coasting along, just riding along, letting everybody else get the you know, the the spotlight and everything else. <laughs> and then the uh, the fourth one is the underdog, where they're the ones that everyone picks on. And, you know, when they get mad, they're going to show everybody that they can do it. And the last one is the America Sweetheart. That's the ones that we love. They're good-looking people. They've got great personalities, and we want to see them win every time. But another one is when you go in to do you know, to do your casting call and you're in front of them and everything, make sure you treat it just like a job interview. They're going to want to know a lot about you, and they're notorious for setting it up to put you in a stressful situation to see how you really are. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that during the interview or the casting call itself, when all of these people are out waiting to get in, they've actually got cameras Uh and microphones listening they also plant people in the lines talking to people, seeing if they can get them riled up, doing little things. It's almost, uh, in fact, I think Howard was talking about the candid camera before. It's kind of that kind of scenario. They're really setting people up to see how do they really react and are they going to be annoyed that it's been taking so long and they're hot and bothered and they're hungry. And that's when they really see the real person come out. And then I always tell people, keep in mind about, you know, everybody wants fans, and they want to be popular, and they want to be liked, and they want to be loved. Well, the one thing that most people don't think about when they get on here are what we call the unfans, the people that really are not your fans. They're very belligerent. They are mean, and they attack you either on one of the blogs or whatever it is that they're writing about. And there's also times that you get, stalkers that come out of this. 
Now, when you've talked to people who have been on the shows afterwards, mm-hmm. um, would you say that uh, that most of them are happy that they went on or unhappy? or I've had a few that have called me that have been unhappy, and it had to do with the negotiation of the contract with the, with the studio or the production company itself. But most of the time, as far as being on the show... I haven't really talked to anybody that regret it, but most of the people I talk to, you know, because I don't do the Big Brothers or Survivor or game show contestants, oh, uh-huh. and most of them that I deal with are businesses that are getting exposure for their their type business or their career, like Flip This House or Design Star, Top Chef, that type of stuff. Uh-huh. And they're very happy with it because they get a lot of business out of it. Hmm. Yes, because as a psychiatrist, it has always um, uh, concerned me uh, that, re- especially you know, shows where, well, like um, The Bachelor or Bachelorette or any of those kinds of shows, um, where where some people are made fun of and um, you know, or where they get them to do very uh, uh, sexually promiscuous things, and you know, they're caught up in the moment with. Of being on the show, and it's it's almost like being in another world. Um, so they do these things, and then afterwards, when they have to go back into real life, it's like, what did I do? What did I do? That's exactly what they say too. And then it goes into syndication or reruns, <laughs> and they see it over and over and over again. Right. <laughs> so they have to keep reliving it, and that's you know why I tell people think about it. Well, the ultimate reality show right now is playing out in front of all the studios in Hollywood. That's true. That is true. They'll probably start filming that. Uh, I, w- I would think that a very enterprising production company ought to be out there right now taping and interviewing uh, Writers Guild pickets and uh, put it all together and create their own reality show called On Strike. Yeah, and they probably will. Don't even <laughs> you're, you know you're giving them fuel for the. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good idea. Well, most of the time, if, if if someone is really hesitant and they're they're seeing red flags come up from the casting call, I always tell them, learn to say no. Don't make it where it's do or die. If you're not on that show and your life is going to crumble, there's something wrong. Well, you know, having been the defense psychiatrist for Jonathan Schmitz with the first uh, major reality show uh, tragedy when um, Scott Amador revealed his same secret sex crush, um, same-sex secret crush, uh, and Jonathan was driven by the show to wind up shooting Scott three days later, um, that, you know, has remains the classic that shows just how powerful these kinds of experiences, humiliating experiences, can be. And uh, much as the media tried to describe that as a, a gay hate crime, that wasn't at all what it was. Yeah. And um, same thing with so many of these reality shows where people are humiliated because that's what the producers think that people want to watch. And, in fact, obviously with the ratings, that, that is true. Um, but it does have, it can have lifelong consequences. A, a, another example of this is um, the current children's show, uh, the Kid Nation. Kid Nation, mm-hmm. <laughs> where um, that really um, could have long-term consequences for these children. I mean, not only were they physically hurt, burned, and so on, mm-hmm. but the scars are deeper uh, psychologically. No, I, I agree with you on that. 
And, and I do think that a lot of people will regret it once it's over. And, you know, they say that they have therapists on hand, but really it's not to the extent that they would like people to believe. Um, there are some simplistic psychological testing that goes on, but, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily clear that they pick the people who are the most stable, but rather the others who are going to be, make better television. That's right. Well, I'd like to thank you both very much for being on the show. This has been very interesting. Howard Fabric, he is uh, the senior labor law partner of the Los Angeles office of Aiken Gump Strauss at Al, and um, with a specialty in entertainment law. And Casey Lee, the uh, publicity diva, and uh, her book is well, one of her books is How to Get Booked on Reality TV. Um, Casey, would you like to give your your uh, website address? Sure, it is www. 52waystobecomefamous.com And Howard, would you like to uh, give any more identifying information or should people just look up Aiken Gump Strauss, etc.? That, that'll be adequate. I just thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome, both of you. Uh, this has you. been fascinating. I'd also like to thank in absentia Nick Santora who talked to us live from the Writers Guild ticket line. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 